Okay, I can't do Andy's clearing of throat, so I'm not even. Well, you could. (laughs) That was pathetic. (laughs) You ready, Dee? Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Pippa Sturt, and alongside me is my co host, Simon Walsh. Hello, Pippa. And today we're joined by Corey Doctorow and Rebecca Giblin. Hello. Hi, so good to be here. Corey Doctorow is a renowned science fiction author, activist and journalist. He's written a range of highly acclaimed books, as well as being a great opponent of DRM, which I'm sure we'll get into. His most recent book is Choke Point Capitalism, which he's co-written with Rebecca Giblin, Professor of Law at Melbourne University, Art Future Fellow and Director of Intellectual Property Research Institute of Australia. So tell us a little bit about Choke Point Capitalism since we're on it. Well, uh, um, you know, Rebecca and I have, between us, many decades of experience in what what you could call the copyright wars, Mm -hmm. arguments about whether you should be on team tech or team content. And we've we've really reached a breaking point with it. We're filled up to the back teeth with just kind of the nonsense about it. And one day in the back of a cab in Melbourne, after a presentation that we gave together, we started talking about how... Uh, this dichotomy is false and how um, neither team is a good team to be on and how there's a team artist that is separate from all of those and that it is also separate largely from the copyright question, that it's that it's about structural questions about how the industry works. And so during lockdown, we, we set out to write this book. It's, it's a book that tries to explain how it is that over 40 years of the expansion of copyright, making it last longer, making the penalties harsher, making it easier to get those penalties, making cover more works, we've managed to expand the profitability of the entertainment industry across all of its sectors, while both proportionally and in real terms reducing the share of that money that goes to artists and what we can do to address that. And what we really noticed when we were writing it is that all of these companies were playing from the same playbook, that they were creating these hourglass-shaped markets that had audiences at one side, creators at the other, and then themselves squatting at the neck where they were mediating access and extracting much more than a fair share. The choke point. The choke point, yes. exactly. And so it was actually quite late in. It was right in the redrafting that we said, we said well, no, this is all the same thing. What's this thing here in the middle? And we kept trying to find a name for it. Like, it could have been pinch point capitalism. That yeah. would have been a bit less attractive. Yeah. Um, and 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 what this has come from, it's come from, you know, again, over the same period we've seen the expansion of copyright, we've also seen this increasing tolerance of monopoly and corporate concentration. And um, people have really started saying the quiet parts out loud. You know, Warren Buffett salivating over, you know, businesses that have wide, sustainable moats. Peter Thiel saying competition is for losers. This is the orthodoxy taught now in business school. Don't make something, Right. Find a way to extract as much as you can from the people who do. That's how you get rich. And this is what we wanted to to, to really pull the curtain aside on, show the tricks that all of these corporations were using in order to do that. And then, you know, much more importantly, I think the whole second half of the book is about what are the things that we can do about it? How do we widen those choke points out and give creative workers much more power? And when you talk about choke points, do you, do you include the streaming platforms there or are you sort of talking true corporates? I mean, where did the streaming platforms... Oh, no, the streaming platforms absolutely fit in there. And actually, the streaming platforms are, are a good example, particularly Spotify, of how 
giving uh, creators more copyright doesn't actually solve any of their problems, and in fact can create more problems for them down the line. We compare giving a creator more copyright to giving your bully kid extra lunch money. Doesn't matter how much lunch money you give your kid, all you're going to be bullies. bullies. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, you know, when the bullies go around and start campaigning on behalf of the hungry children of your, your land and demanding more lunch money for them, you should take them with a grain of salt uh, and and understand that they're going to use whatever excess lunch money you give them to to secure more power. So, you know, copyrights last very long and they're very expensive. They're easy to enforce. The statutory damages are very high. And after the Napster Wars, it became very clear that if you wanted to make an audio streaming service, a music streaming service, you would have to license. And so the, by that point, almost all of the music copyrights have been gathered into three hands. You've got Sony, Warner, and Universal controlling between them about 70% of recorded music. And then they own the big publishers that record, recover about 65% of all compositions. So Spotify, if they were going to exist, would have to allow these three big firms to structure how Spotify worked. So for starters, they had to give giant tranches of equity to the three big record labels. They became co-owners of, of Spotify. They, the big labels were also able to negotiate a, an incredibly weird-looking deal from the outside, at least at first blush. They negotiated a deal whereby they would charge very, very little per stream, uh, and that this would be a most favored nation deal. So every other label, the, the small labels and independent artists who represent the other 30% of recorded music, would also have to follow suit. The difference being that those little indies did not have what, what uh, the big three had, which was a guaranteed monthly minimum. And when you have a guaranteed monthly minimum and a low per stream revenue, it means, or a rating rather, it means that most of the money that comes in, or some big fraction of the money that comes in, is not attributed. It's, it doesn't necessarily have to go to any artist. You can give it to the artist you favor, you can give it proportionally to all artists, you can divide it up however you want, you can trouser it. And so between these two things, the most favored nation status and the low per stream rate, the companies were already making a lot of money. And then comes the IPO. And the IPO is for a business whose uh, cost basis is incredible because the cost per stream is, is next to nothing. And so they all immediately pop and get billions, which again is theirs to distribute however they want. Some, all, or none of it can go to artists. And we talk in the book about how Taylor Swift personally saw to it that the largest of these, Universal, uh, dispersed a, a substantial fraction of this to artists, and in real terms, some of the other labels um, promised to do a kind of accounting trick where they ha already had declared that the artists owed them unsus unsustainable and unpayable amounts of money. And they said, well, we've just got this money uh, over the door from the IPO. We're going to give some of that to you in the form of a credit to your debt to us, which you are never going to pay off. But now you are slightly less indebted to us, which is practically the same as us giving you more money. Yeah. I should say, I think that the Spotify in particular, the, 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 the whole revenue model is actually pretty shaky and unsustainable at the moment because they do pay out an awful lot as a percentage of their revenues um, in royalties. But the reason why that it popped and why investors were betting on this is because they did think that Spotify could create a choke point. And this is exactly what we're seeing play out now, that even though um, Spotify hasn't been making a profit or just a really razor-thin one, um, because they are capturing the audience for streaming so effectively, they are using that to be able to shake down creators 
is now. So, for yeah. example, one of their more recent innovations is to say, oh, hey, we know that uh, you, you really want to make it. You want to be the one who's discovered. And it's our, up to our algorithms and our playlisters to decide who, who does. Well, if you want a greater chance at, being, at making it onto a playlist and getting this all necessary exposure, we understand you might not be able to pay us up front, but what if you accepted a much lower royalty still? And people are so desperate and like the streaming, you know, even though cumulatively the amount of streaming um, revenues that are coming out, it's now, we've now gone past the previous records for um, global recorded music market, made up all of those gains that that came in the the wake of the Napster Wars. But individually, a lot of people are still making very, very little still. And so we're seeing these shakedowns, we're seeing these shakedowns continue. And then another way that that Spotify is creating choke points is through playlistification. Mm -hmm. And um, people listening to this, you might be thinking, oh, hang on, I listen to Spotify playlists. It's really nice. You go to rap caviar or you like, you pick a vibe, you want a chill sort of, a chill kind of vibe you can search and Spotify will choose what you put into your ears. They'll do all of the work for you, which can be really nice, except that if you delegate to Spotify what put, what you put in your ears and you de-intermediate artists from that, right, then Spotify gets ever more power to decide and the artists get ever less. But, but it's exactly the same thing, isn't it, that Google kind of prioritise the list, the search results you see. That's exactly what we're seeing play out here. And, and you're right, I think kind of, you know, lots of people listen to playlists because they can't be asked actually creating the list themselves. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, the way you've described it, to me, it's just exactly as bad as Google kind of just determining what ads you see when you do a general search, so. Well, and and, you know, there's not a technical reason why a Spotify rival couldn't just clone the playlists. Uh, The playlists could themselves be commodities. The the thing that prevents uh, third parties from doing it are legal policies. It's uh, things like enforceable terms of service, the thin copyright over selections, and so on. As a user, it would benefit you to be able to go from one to the other. And historically, when the sectors were much more disorganized, especially when the tech sector was much more disorganized and and less consolidated, it was pretty common for one firm to figure out how to make an interoperable product that connected to another's. So if you remember in the early 2000s, if you used a Mac, you had a big problem, which is that anyone who had Windows and sent you an yes. Office file Bad luck. <laughs> would, would not work, right? Office for Mac was the most cursed piece of software Microsoft ever made. It would just corrupt files. They wouldn't work. When I was a CIO back then, we eventually just started putting a PC on the designer's desk so that they could receive Word files and Excel files and so on. And when that became too unwieldy, we put a big graphics card in it and threw away the Mac. And what Steve Jobs did was not beg Bill Gates to fix Mac for the office, he got some of his engineers to reverse engineer the Microsoft Office file formats, and we got iWork, Pages, Numbers, Keynote, and that lets you read and write all those file formats. That kind of interoperability has been all but extinguished by the tech firms that benefited from it. Mm-hmm. If you were to try and do this to Apple today, you know, make an interoperable player for iTunes or make a thing that could run Apple iOS apps uh, that wasn't on Apple hardware, they would reduce you to radioactive rubble. And uh, what that has meant is that once a firm has uh, an audience locked in, no other firm can unlock them. And anyone who wants to reach that audience, anyone who wants to reach those customers, has to yield up whatever it is the gatekeeper demands of them in order to reach that audience. So without giving away the whole book, what is the solution or what could potentially be the solutions to this. We can see, like, you know, a big group of people that are suffering quite significantly by the way this has shaken out. Is there a way to fix it? 
Absolutely, there is. Could I introduce one other really wonky term uh, b- before we get onto that? Because wonky I think it in helps. the American sense, not the UK sense. Yes, yes. Um, I think we use it in, in both in both ways in Australia. That is also very confusing. But yeah, what I wanted to just um, introduce was a word called monopsony, which uh, we used to have a lot more in the book, but our readers made it take, made us take it out because it's it's not an attractive word. It's not fun to say, but it's really really important, and we think we can make it sexy. We all know what monopoly is because there's a board game for that. It's where you've got a seller that's got a lot of power over buyers. And so Amazon, um, you know, as a monopolist when it comes to like all kinds of consumer goods, but including things like mm-hmm. ebooks and audiobooks and physical books. But it's also an incredibly powerful buyer or monopsonist in that it's got huge influence over publishers and authors of those books because they cannot sell those books into the market without going through Amazon. Now, we've got what we're talking about in the book is monopsony power throughout, that we've got these tremendously powerful buyers, whether it's the record labels who own those music publishers, whether it's the streaming platforms, the Hollywood talent agencies, Amazon for all of those different categories of books and a whole bunch of others that we get into, they're really powerful buyers. And um, monopsony is much harder to deal with than monopoly. Uh, for one thing, it arises at way lower market concentrations. So even 8 to 10% of a market is hugely problematic. Oh. And for another, traditional competition or antitrust uh, remedies work even less well for this than they do for monopoly. Um, but we do know what does work, which are things like interventions like helping producers and, and workers get countervailing power, encouraging new entrants into the market, all of those things that might, and directly regulating biopower as well. So all of those things can widen choke points out. And so what we talk about in the book, after explaining all of these different tools that these companies have um, cleverly or sneakily used to lock everyone in, we talk about how you reverse that to widen it out. So interventions like um, permitting uh, interoperability, where it's not for copyright infringement, um, but in order to you know uh, free people up from from these lock-ins, um, things like uh, if we're we're going to be thinking about copyright, but let's not give copyright away like we're giving lunch money to the kids. Let's secure the copyright to the authors. So interventions like um, rights to be able to reclaim your copyrights after a certain amount of time, or you know where they're no longer being commercially exploited, um, that can really do a lot to free up markets. The record labels, the, the reason why the majors have so much power over the markets today is not because they're essential to the future of that, but because they've got these rights for, you know, 90 or more years in many cases. And that allows them, because they've accumulated so many of them over time, it allows them to shape the future of the market. But if creators could get their rights back every 20 years, for example, then they wouldn't have anywhere near as much power as that. And then there's other interventions. I mean, there's so many other interventions. Corey, yeah, do you want to mention some? Yeah, I was, you know, the... the um traditional way to structure a book like this is you have 10 chapters explaining why everything is terrible, and you have an 11th chapter of kind of anodyne advice, like go out and vote harder. Yeah. Chapter uh, 11 books. Chapter yeah, because my books. question really is, how do you make people care? How do you make the the government, the people that can change the law right. and the law of copyright and IP generally, how do you make them care enough to do something about it? I think the problem isn't that they don't care. I think they often do care. It's just that they don't know how to fix things because they don't understand the problem. So in 2019, we got the new European Copyright Directive that mandated that every service that accepts user content has to run a filter to check for copyright infringement. As a computer scientist, this is nonsense. 
right? We don't have a filter that can find copyright infringement, yeah. but also not catch fair dealing. Um, there are many easy ways to defeat it if you're a bad guy. There are many ways to get stuck in it if you're a good guy. And more to the point, the closest thing we have to one of these, which is content ID for YouTube, has cost $100 million so far. And that's only doing a small piece of what we want. And if we are going to make this the law of the land, it's going to mean that any company that doesn't have $100 million can't even enter the market. So it's going to give YouTube perpetual dominance. Governments did this with the best of will. They did it thinking that they understood what was going on, thinking that they had located the problem and, and were going to fix it. They did it thinking they were punishing big tech, even though both Facebook and YouTube, towards the end of this debate, said, actually, we quite like this because we can afford it. Um, other companies can't. That's their lookout. But we can make we can make this work. This is fine. And you had you know dim bulbs in the commission, like uh, or in the European Union, like Axel Vos, who was the the rapporteur on this, who was saying things like, "Well, don't worry. This isn't going to stop memes. Uh, AI can tell whether something is a meme. I know this because when I type meme into Google Image Search, I just see memes. Right? This is just this sort of kind of howling ignorance. Right? So so we write we write a book in which the first half of it really explains how the markets are rigged. The second half of the book is shovel-ready technical proposals for systemic changes. If you are one of these lawmakers who really does care about this stuff and really wants to do something about it, here are the changes you can make. And they're all structural. We, we had an editor uh, reject this book. He said, uh, I really liked it, but I think that the readers are going to be very frustrated because all the solutions are systemic. There's nothing the individual can do to fix it. And we're like, dude, you are so close to getting it. Um, you know, you're not going to shop your way out of a monopoly. You're not going to recycle your way out of climate change. These are systemic problems. They need systemic solutions. But the systemic solutions are often quite straightforward. You know, if it were the case that in the four states in which uh, most contracts were related to royalties were signed, which is uh, Washington, New York, California, and Tennessee, because of Nashville. Yeah. If in those four states, the state contract law said, we won't enforce non-disclosures where it relates to material omissions or misstatements that redound to the detriment of people who are owed royalties, then the current practice, which is where people frequently discover that they're owed lots of money because there are accounting problems with their uh, royalty statements, which, you know, we don't have an explanation for this, but we, we did cite this one, one firm that has done tens of thousands of audits over uh, 30 years, and in all of those audits, they've only found one instance in which the accounting uh, error went in the favor of the artist, not the label. We assume that's kind of horrible, like probability storm or something. We're not sure how that could possibly be the case. Mm -hmm. But if you do find these errors and you ask for the money that's been stolen from you, they say, well, if you don't want to have to go to court and sue us for it, you're going to have to sign a non-disclosure agreement so that you can't tell anyone else that we've robbed where they should come and look for the money that we've stolen from them. If we were to change four state laws with four little bills, we would put more money into the pockets of more artists all over the world than all the copyright term extensions of the last 40 years combined. And it's state law rather than federal law, so it would be an easy, easy fix. To, much easier to fix. And you, it, you don't have to do all of them. You can do one of them, right? Do New York, and you will get a huge advantage in New York. Do California next, or pick off Nashville because it's weak, right? Just, just take, one of these, take one of these places. Well, weak in the sense that Tennessee has a bunch of industries and Nashville is just a piece of it. It's, it's a much bigger industry in California and, and in New York. Yeah, and transparency rights, that's around contracts as well. Um, this is another incredibly, like an incredibly um, important avenue for us to be pursuing. We saw that with 
um, Audible when um, uh, you know Amazon and Audible had been running this return scam where they've been encouraging subscribers, their ongoing monthly subscribers, to return books, as many as you like, no questions asked. Doesn't matter if you've had it on your device for a year, uh, you've, you've uh, read the whole thing, you loved it, right? You can still return it for a full credit. Get another one, why not, right? And what they were doing is, um, you know, authors, independent authors who were affected by this that were getting their books onto Audible via the ACX platform, they were starting to see that their sales numbers were really going down, even on books that they'd expensively produced that were well-reviewed. Um, but they what they were seeing sometimes is, you know, maybe they had minus two or three sales for the day, but Audible would only report to them their net sales. They wouldn't break out the number of returns. They would only say, well, this is how much ultimately you got for this day. Um, and uh, what happened is there was a glitch one day and three weeks of returns data showed up in a single in a single day. And so the veil was lifted. Some authors saw that they had hundreds or even thousands of books just being returned willy-nilly because of these policies. Now, it's really clear what Amazon is doing here and, and Audible, it's, it's their same playbook. They're trying to lock in users, right? Yeah. And which they do by, you know, for subscribers, um, they do it by having these very generous return policies. Giving but it to them for free. Basically. Giving it to them for free, letting them use it like a library because they don't care where the revenue ends up. They just care about getting that, that, that monthly subscription. They don't care if their creative labor force actually gets paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also do it, of course, with DRM. That's they wrap all of their books in digital rights management so that nobody um, can come and create a competing service without having to persuade all of these existing customers to sort of split their library across multiple places or to sort of leave it all behind. Um, then once they've got the users locked in, they lock in all of the suppliers. The authors and publishers don't really have any alternatives for reaching the audiobook market without going through Audible. Wow. And, and, you know, Corey has, you know, d- deliberately made a decision not to do this. And his agent, I'm, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, has told him that he's forsaken paying off his mortgage and fully funding the college education of his kid um, by not having his books on Audible. And then once you've done that, then they're eliminating the competition, right? Because nobody else can come in. And then once you've got all those conditions in place, that's what allows these companies um, to to shake down their their creative labor force for you know an unsustainably low share of value. And so that's what's going on. But you can see once you have some transparency, once you've got some light shone on this, it stops working so well because these authors were able to mobilize once they yeah. knew what was going on, once they saw. Once they saw that one day's glitch, the scam became clear, right? It was obvious what they were doing. And so the authors were able to mobilize, to organize. They knew what shape the enemy had now. And, you know, even though it's been a brutal fight and and Audible is a pretty uh, formidable adversary, they have managed to get some changes to these policies, some additional transparency. And so that's another thing that um, we should be having. And in in Europe, the, the Digital Single Market Directive, one of the good innovations in that is that they did um, require member states to um, to give transparency rights to artists and performers so that they can find out how their works are being used, what kind of revenue is coming in from that and how their pay is calculated. And so these are just really basic interventions that we can and should be making. It's just so mean. And it, it feels like it's playing on the natural insecurity of creatives that you would just think, I would just think, oh shit, yeah, my book isn't as good as I thought it was, people aren't buying it. That would be my natural reaction, right? I I think that the other thing that's important to note here is that to the extent that Amazon 
when it started its self-publishing platform was being quite generous with creators. It wasn't because Jeff Bezos is a good-natured slob who just wanted everyone to get their fair share. It was because for so long as they had to compete with someone else, they would offer better terms. And once they didn't have to compete with someone else, they wouldn't. That there's no exceptionally evil or good thing about tech, right? That one form of tech exceptionalism that's really wrong is to assume that these guys are evil super geniuses. They're neither super geniuses, nor are they particularly evil. Their ambitions are exactly the same as every other would-be monopolist in every other sector. It's profit-driven. I feel like we're seeing this right now play out in real time with Twitter. <laughs> well, you think a little, little uh, speed-running the Dunner-Kruger curve? And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's doors always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Okay, so this bit is, as described, a quick fire round. Uh, so dig through the music. So what was your first job? Working in a science fiction bookstore. I was, uh, I, I sold guns. Uh. <laughs> oh my God. No, no, sorry. This is that supposed that to. One. No, 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 definitely. Like, I, I worked at a gun shop. <laughs> I was fourteen. It was weird. Sorry. Just. Yeah. Are you allowed to hurt? Um, I sorry. don't think so. No, this is quick fire. No follow ups. Yes. <laughs> what was your worst job, Rebecca? I actually quite liked a gun one. Um, worst job working as a lawyer. I hadn't realised when I became Dirty a lawyer. Shit. I will agree with you there. I didn't realise. Uh, I didn't know what lawyers did, and I also I just hadn't internalised that you have to work with other lawyers. Didn't work out for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pepper and I have separate offices, so it's fine. Corey, what was your worst job? I worked for a telephone polling firm that I then discovered was doing push polling for Canada's Tory party. <gasps> oh, the shame. That was pretty good. <laughs> Our favourite subject at school, Corey? Well, I did seven years in a four-year high school so that I could stay in the writing program. So I think it would be the creative writing school program. Uh, Anyone where the teachers would leave me alone to do my own thing um, because I just found it all violently uninteresting. Uh, I got diagnosed with ADHD last year. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to go to the gun shop, I know. <laughs> okay, Rebecca, what's your special skill? Uh, my special skill is impossible things. That's when it starts to really get interesting. Corey? I can actually multitask. They yeah, say that can. nobody can actually multitask. No, no, he multitask. can. I've seen I it. It's, it's wild. What did you want to be when you grew up, Rebecca? Uh, this one's really awkward. I wanted to be a mounted police officer because I, that was a job where I could ride horses all day. It seemed like such a sweet spot. Uh, then there was a, 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 a bombing in Melbourne and I decided it was at a police station. I decided that was not such a great job after all. <laughs> I was five when that happened. Corey? I wanted to be a science fiction writer. 
Oh, living the dream. Growing up to be a science fiction writer is a bit like growing up to own a candy factory or, or climbing trees for a living or, or, you know, some other ridiculous job that no one actually wants as an adult. But it's that's certainly not growing up to be a lawyer. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and what did your parents want you to be, Corey? A university graduate, which I am not. Okay. How many honorary doctorates do you have? Uh, I have one honorary doctorate, another one in the queue, but I... Um, that surely satisfies your parents. It eventually did. No, it eventually did. But literally, the day my parents flew to the UK to come with me to uh, Milton Keynes to get my honorary doctorate from the OU, my mom said, you know, you could finish your undergrad still. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, what about your parents? Um, I, I've come to realize that one of the, the best gifts in my childhood was that my parents had no expectations of me whatsoever. So nobody ever expected me to do anything. And also nobody ever told me I couldn't do anything. But in a positive way rather than, or not. We don't need to get into that. Okay. <laughs> Rebecca, on the uh, next question, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh my God. Um, it is Bohemian Rhapsody, All the Parts. All the Parts, okay. At the same time, would you, would, that's impressive. Would you like It's a know? lot. It's a lot. No, I don't think we can clear the rights no. for that, I'm afraid. Okay. okay, fair enough. Corey. I'm not really a karaokeist, but... But um, I confess that I don't understand why people listen to music that's not talking heads. I get that. We're on I the road to nowhere. There we go. Um, office dogs, business or bullshit? And absolutely. We've, I've, I've got one on the website for my, my research institute. We've got a research institute dog. What um, sort of dog? <laughs> she's a husky historia. <laughs> Other people can have dogs. Feels like you're bullshitting. My daughter is no longer in nappies. My parents are not yet in nappies. My discretionary third-party turd handling days are over. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I get behind you so much on that. I can't even begin to start. Yeah. Oh, you haven't lived. There we go. Rebecca, have you ever been fired? Have I? I don't think so. I'd remember, wouldn't I? Yeah, I think you would. I, I, there's, there are jobs that I haven't got that I really, really desperately wanted. There are big failures that I've had in that area, which have been wonderful, but but yeah, no, I haven't. One, one of the firms I used to work with, the way we fired people was just to stop giving them work until they took the hint. So there may have been that. Like if, you, if you just suddenly stop being given work, that's a hint that you're actually... No, it wasn't that either. So I wasn't going to... I was going to say that I hadn't been fired, and then you said that. And yeah. I was a columnist for many years on The Guardian, and uh, I had an editor who suddenly wasn't uh, working for The Guardian anymore, and then I had another editor who's quite good who suddenly wasn't working for The Guardian anymore, and then I had another editor who's relocated to the San Francisco and then suddenly wasn't working for The Guardian anymore. And then I no longer had an editor, and I ceased to write for The Guardian. I mean, I think they ghosted my editor, and then I got ghosted. I don't think that, that it was anything to do with me. I think they just were like, let's do a it's different like editorial direction. It's like the flip side of quiet quitting. Yeah. And actually, I had that happen with the LA Times, too. That I was uh, solicited to write, uh, to be a regular book reviewer, and the first... Uh, book review I turned in, my editor said, um, they've just worked out that I've worked enough hours that I'm entitled to benefits, so I'm being fired. And then I got a different editor, and this happened again. And then they just, and then they said, oh, by the way, we've never sent you a contract for any of these columns. Here's your contract. And I read it, and it was awful. And I said, well, I'm not signing this. And they said, well, it's not negotiable. And I said, 
well, you've already published the work, so I don't think you get to say it's non-negotiable. I think that I have the negotiating leverage, and they did change the contract and never called me back. So I think yes, that is also spite, being fired. Probably. Yeah. I think yeah. you kind of quit in that one. I think that's, I think that's quitting. I, th- I think that was pretty clear. But the, the billionaire owner's socialist daughter now owns the paper, so I'm wondering if I might end up working for them again. Okay. We'll see. What's your vice? Rebecca, this is starting to feel like an elaborate sting operation where you're just trying to lure us. I know you're making notes. I feel like I've disclosed a lot of things already. The the advice I'll admit to uh, on record is is Twitter. Uh, Me too. I just, I can't stop. I'm, I don't have other socials. I'm, I'm usually very good about controlling my time, but the doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. I'm so locked in with something that I do, that I'm, it's so easy to go to and doom scroll with, but the thought of starting again is just exhausting. It's just, I've got a beautiful, beautiful community there. That's where I, everything is curated for me. And um, here we are. What about you, Corey? Um, I work when I'm anxious, and so I work all the time. <laughs> oh, I don't confront my anxieties. I just work. I have seven books in production right now. <laughs> don't ask me about my last three years. They were tough. Do you know what? That sounds a bit like, you know, when you interview somebody and you say to them, what, you know, are there any things you don't do well? Well, I just work too hard. No, well, but that is advice, though. I, is, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, in the sense that it interferes with my interpersonal relationship, health, and, and mental health, Yes, I, I, I definitely, it's a vice. Is there something in business that other people think of as real, straightforward business and you actually think is bullshit or vice versa? Is there something that most people think is bullshit that you actually think is good, solid business? Oh, the word brand. And any sentence with the word brand in it that isn't about actually burning the flesh of a piece of livestock <laughs> is almost certainly bullshit. In fact, I'm going to say is bullshit. The idea of branding, all of it, the whole thing, just just nonsense on stilts from top to bottom. People like things when they're good. Um, human beings don't have brands. Uh, and people who think otherwise are deluded, soft-headed Fools. So when people say so and so is a brand, I think like, you are dumb. Sake. And if that person thinks that they are a brand, they are dumb too. Yeah. Um, my answer is going to be, I guess, business and bullshit. Can I do that? Yeah. yeah. Um, biz like, shit is what we like to call it. Biz shit. Just, just what, um, what I just absolutely cannot handle seeing anymore. But you see more and more of it is all of these businesses. You know, it's like what we we're talking about before. But all of these businesses that don't make anything, they're not interested in making anything. They're not interested in providing anything. They're interested in kind of going meta and making the money from all of the people who are actually doing the useful things in society. Um, And that has now, like it's just got to a point where that's the only people who are really making any money anymore. And I just can't stand it, right? That has got to end. Um, and we've got to find we've got to find ways of easing out of that, or we're gonna have people on the street with pitchforks. It's sort of like going back to the brand thing again though, because it's that thing where, you know, you get people that have a brand. They don't make any of the stuff that they're selling. They're not actually creating anything. They're not even designing it, but they have a brand. Have you developed a word for that, Rebecca? I'm sure they must already. I'm sure I mean, much rentier smarter people than me. Rentier, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rent, like as in euthanize the rentiers. Yeah. <laughs> we have a whole section on rentiers in the book as okay. well, uh, where we talk about this um, phenomenon. But you know, we need to we need to change things so that the people who make things and the people who provide the services that we need get paid fairly for that. This is where we give you a thirty second pitch. 
to pitch book, podcast, you know, untapped, whatever it is you want to pitch. Rebecca? I can pitch untapped. Uh, So these are incredible books. Nearly every book in every country is out of print. Like we lose our literary heritage. So all of the stuff that was printed and not digital, it risks just being lost altogether. With Untapped, we work together with libraries, with authors and with my research team to um, rescue 161 of these otherwise going to be lost books. We got them made available um, as uh, digital copies, available in libraries and also for sale. But then it was such a strong collection, we managed to sell the print rights to. They're all coming out in print. We would really encourage everyone to have a look at the website, um, check it out and uh, see if you're interested in any of those. And support the authors. All of the, the nearly all of the, the revenue that comes from this goes straight to the authors or their estates. Are they all Australian authors? Or yeah. They've all got a connection to Australia and they're almost all Australian. Amazing. Fantastic. I wasn't timing that. I reckon it's about 30 seconds. Corey? Well, I'll pitch the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a nonprofit that I've worked with for 20 years now. I first moved to the UK to be their European director. And its mission is what it always has been, which is to make sure that the human rights that we take for granted in the real world follow us into the digital world. Um, it is, there are lots of digital human rights groups, but it's the eldest, and it's the one with the best grasp of both policy and technology. There are a lot of uh, instances in which um, states try to hold tech firms to account and ask them to do impossible things, like make us encryption that will work to protect people from identity thieves, but fail when the police want to serve a warrant on them. And when tech firms get those requests and say no, it's important that people understand that they're saying no in good, on good faith. There are other times where they say things like, you have to let people leave your service and stay in touch with the people that they left behind. And the tech firms say, that's crazy talk, that's impossible. And that's when it's important to have someone to say, actually, they're just bullshitting you this time. And EFF is, is good at doing all of that. We're, we're kind of a multi-tactical, deep and uh, and long-running force for good in the digital world. I'm very proud to have worked with them. It's, this is my 20th year with them. Fantastic. Thank you. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit, and we'll be back with BWB Extra on Thursday. Until then... It's ciao.